Well, I wasn't kidding. We are going to have a sermon. If you got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to look at Isaiah 36 and 37. If you haven't been with us, if you're new here uh, to the church, or you've just been gone a little while and are back, we have been on a journey through the book of Isaiah, and we've been in this section which has really been all about trusting God. I mean, it has been all about God saying to his people, trust me, trust me, trust me. And just to give you a little historical context, you know, uh, all through the book, God has been talking about this nation, Assyria, and it's this massively powerful nation. They're really frightening. They used to do, when they went to war, they went to war in a violent way, and they, they would reign through terror, and um, they are on Judah's doorstep, and now we reach the kind of climax of this section of the book of Isaiah, where Assyria is no longer just kind of out there as a threat in the future. They, are now, they have now arrived. And so in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, the, there's a portion of the Assyrian army, that a delegation that has been sent to the walls of Jerusalem and they've conquered much of the nation of Judah, many of the major cities. And now some representatives of the king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, uh, come to speak to Hezekiah and his representatives at Judah, at Jerusalem, uh, to declare to them, you should compromise your trust in God. You should give up because we have arrived. And so we're gonna examine that part of the story. Now, if you remember, uh, again, if you've been with us, in the summer, we were going through these 10 attributes, these 10 character traits that we really believe every follower of Jesus should possess. And we, we're trying to, as a church, we care more about not, um, we care more about quality than quantity. I guess is the easy way to say it, right? We care about the depth of your walk with Jesus. So we care more about that than the number of people that fill these seats. We care about the person that you are, that you'd be a person of the way we frame it is deep truth, deep lives, and deep love. That you'd be a person who believes deeply the truth of God, that you'd be a person uh, who walks with character that is formed by God, uh, and that you'd be a person uh, that, that takes action for the sake of God, that, that loves deeply the world that God has sent you into and the people that God has put in your sphere of influence. So we want to become those kinds of people, marked by those three deeps, the way we talk about it. And so, you know, as we talked about that, we looked at this idea of trusting God. That's one of our 10 core character traits that we talk about wanting to possess, to be people who trust God. And uh, we use this story because the same story is told in 2 Kings as is told here in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. So you could go back and check that out if you want to from the, the archives of the sermons on the website. Because what we did there was we talked about this story in terms of like, how do you trust God in the midst of a really challenging time? And we tried to draw out some principles. So rather than just repeat that idea uh, in this section, what I thought we would do today is focus in a little bit more specifically on one aspect of the conversation that takes place here uh, between the representatives of the king of Assyria and Hezekiah and his representatives. And what we want to talk about today is the lies or the deceit that kind of comes into play when you are um, tempted by the world and by the devil to, to not trust God, to compromise your trust in God and being able to identify those lies. As I was thinking about that, I thought about this podcast that I like to listen to. Has anyone ever heard Mike Rowe? You know Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs? He's a great podcast called That's the Way I Heard It uh, or The Way I Heard It. And he talks about different stories and he told a story about Edward Bernays. Anybody know who Edward Bernays is? Like one person, maybe, yeah, I'd never heard of him. Yeah, we got one hand, fantastic. You're, you're a communications prof, aren't you? That's exactly right. So Edward Bernays, or Eddie, as we'll call him, is the father of modern public relations. Now, let me give a disclaimer, because I didn't do this in the first service, and I, I'm sure I offended some people. Uh, PR, public relations, is not bad, okay? 
I'm gonna give you a bad example of public relations, all right? I'm gonna give you a bad example. Uh, so Eddie Bernays was hired by the Beechnut Company in the 1920s because they had too many pigs, a surplus of pigs. Anybody ever had that problem? I know you've been there. The surplus of pigs. And you're like, what am I gonna do? Right? And the problem is there aren't enough people eating bacon. Hard to imagine there are not enough people eating bacon because bacon is fantastic. So there's not enough, enough people eating bacon. So they hire Eddie Bernays to figure this out. They're like, hey, we need you to figure out how to like make us some money, right? And so Eddie Bernays goes to work. And what he does is he, he finds out through surveys that the majority of people in America at that day and age really preferred a light breakfast to a hearty breakfast. That they tended to, you know, coffee and toast. That was kind of breakfast or coffee and a croissant. It was like, that was just what the norm was in the culture at that day and age. And so he said, well, how do I change that? Because no one's eating bacon if they think that's like kind of the right way to go about breakfast. And so he did a survey and he asked 5,000 doctors this question. He said, is it better, healthier for people to eat a hearty breakfast or to eat a light breakfast? And if you're a doctor, how do you answer that question? A hearty breakfast. You need to eat a hearty breakfast. You need to be prepared for the day, right? A hearty breakfast. So he turns that information into the newspaper and shares with them that nine out of 10 doctors prefer a hearty breakfast for your health. And he sells that to America and, and spreads it long and wide. And well, guess what happens? Bacon sales go up and the Beechnut Company is very happy and he has made a ton of money. Now fast forward a few years and the American Tobacco Company calls Eddie Bernays and they say to him, we have a problem. We're not selling enough cigarettes, right? Men are smoking like chimneys. It's awesome. But women are not smoking. Why are women not smoking? Because it's socially a taboo. It's not considered ladylike, right? It's not considered ladylike for, for women to smoke. And so they wouldn't smoke in public. And so not enough women are buying cigarettes. And that's a problem for the American Tobacco Company. And so they hire Eddie Bernays to figure it out. And so he figures out what he's going to do. He says you know, on, on Easter Parade Sunday, did you know there used to be an Easter parade in New York City on Easter Day? I had no idea. Some of you are shaking. I, this is the first I'd learned of this, right? So there was an Easter Day parade. And he decided at the Easter Day parade in New York City, what he would do is he would hire a bunch of fashionable models to smoke cigarettes and he would bring the press in to film them and picture and take pictures of them smoking cigarettes. And so sure enough, he brought in the press. He, he brought in the cigarettes. The ladies are smoking. They're very glamorous looking. The pictures are taken. It's scandalous. It hits the newspapers, right? And it's scandalous because women don't smoke in public. That's a no-no, right? And so... Uh, they take the pictures, it goes out, and he, like any good PR guy would, suggests what the uh, title of the article should be. And here were the titles, that he, the headlines that he gave to the New York Times and many other papers. New York women light freedom torches. You like that, don't you? And the second one, striking a match for equality. What did he do? He tied gender inequality, this thing that needed to be resolved, this thing that women just knew inherently is bad, right, ladies? That's a sad representation. <laughs> Holy cow. Gender inequality, no good, right? And so he ties equality with smoking cigarettes and convinces these women around the country that you are doing something for your gender, for women. You know, women unite, smoke a cigarette, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about this, right? Is there's a lot of deceit in that, wouldn't you say? I mean, cigarettes are not good for you. They're not good for anyone that smokes them. And yet, lies can be so hard to identify. 
Deceit can be so hard to identify, right? Because people who, you know, people who lie, you know, and bringing them in all shapes and sizes, they can take something like gender equality and use it to harm the very people that they're claiming to be helping. They can take any set of information and turn it to the advantage of those who use them, right? To use, the, use lies to their advantage. It can be incredibly hard to identify lies. Interestingly enough, Edward Bernays actually wrote the book on public relations. Now, he didn't call it public relations at the time. He called it something else. He called it propaganda. He has written a book by that very name, Propaganda. You can still find it in your local bookstore. Probably not in your local bookstore. You can find it on Amazon or something, right? So he wrote this book, Propaganda. He only changed the name from Propaganda to Public Relations when in the 1930s, a leader of a European country picked up that book and decided he really liked the principles in it and he used it to convince a nation that they should hand him the keys to the kingdom, at which point he attempted to take over all of Europe and the world. You know who that leader is, don't you? Adolf Hitler. Lies are these dangerous things, right? They're these dangerous things, but they're not always easy to identify. They're not always easy to know. I mean, how many of you have felt like you got, you've been deceived before? You've been fooled, you've been tricked. No one wants to admit it. Don't raise your hand, right? Yeah, I mean, we all wanna believe that we're wise, that we're smart, that no one can pull the wool over our eyes, that we're not the sucker that was born just you know, a minute ago. But the reality is, Lies can be very, very hard to identify and then hard to know what to do with when we identify them. So here's what we're gonna look at today because here's the thing. Lies are not just a weapon in the arsenal of marketers and PR experts, at least the bad ones. They are the favorite weapon of the world and the devil who is the father of what? Of lies. In his never-ending fight to prevent God's people from trusting and obeying God. They are a chosen weapon in the hands of the enemy. But here's the good news. The lies that the world will tell us, the lies that that the world and the devil use to get us to mistrust God have common themes. There are common themes. What I mean by that is the devil is not incredibly inventive with his lies, nor is the world incredibly inventive with their lies. They have common themes. And because they have common themes, we can identify those. And if we can identify those common themes, then we can know what to do with them when we see them. Yes, yes. Because if, we'll, if we want to learn to trust God, I mean, here's kind of the bottom line. If you want to trust God, as we're about to see Hezekiah and his people look to trust God in the midst of a very difficult situation, if you want to do that, you need to be able to recognize when you are being lied to. And you need to be able to understand the difference between the truth and lies. And so we want to look at a few of those. We just want to hone in on specifically uh, the lies that thousands of years ago this representative from Assyria is telling to the people of Judah. And you, I think you will find that they are surprisingly not that much different than the lies that you and I hear on a pretty regular basis. Now, here's one thing I want to give you about this that's really important. You'll see it again and again as we go through this. You will notice that the lies that are told by the world to convince God's people to not trust him are actually usually not outright lies. They will usually, the lies are not found in what, they are, what is said. You'll find again and again that what is gonna be said here are actually true statements. The lie, the deceit comes into place from the conclusion that, that the person speaking intends those who hear him to draw from the things he said. I want you to think about that because that's what makes lies so difficult to discern, right? Someone can say to you, you have done this, you have been there, you have done that. And technically all those things they could say to us would be true, right? It's possible they may say all things that are true to us, but then the conclusion that is drawn from those statements 
leads us astray and away from the conclusion that God would have us draw from his word and from what he says to be true. Does that make sense, church? Okay, that's important to understand because honestly, just outright lies are not usually that effective. The most effective lies are the ones where we've stated a truth and then twisted it to mean something it doesn't mean. Right? It's, we battle that all the time in terms of we live in a culture that is increasingly biblically illiterate, right? Where just in, increasingly, right? And I don't mean that in a condemning way. I just mean it in a, we understand and know less of the Bible as a culture than, you know, we know less now than we did 20 years ago about the Bible, just in the population at large. And one of the realities of that is anybody can take a single verse, pluck it out of its context, say, this is what it means. And generally people don't know to reject that what they're saying is not the truth. They generally go, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? And if that can be done with God's word, it surely can be done with anything else. And so it's so imperative. I mean, one of the things that we're gonna see again and again with these different themes of the type of lies that are brought to us by the world is that as followers of Jesus, knowing God's word, knowing and relying upon God's word is so pivotal, it's so crucial because we don't just know bits and pieces of it. We don't just kind of know um, a verse here or there. We're saturated with it. And as we're saturated with it, we know the context of it and we understand how to study it and rightly understand the, the author's intent in the writing and not just twist it to be about whatever I want it to be about that day so that my, my day feels a little bit better, right? But then I say, oh, this is what this text means. When we do that, we have a powerful weapon to fighting against lies. Ephesians 6, 11. This is chapter, Ephesians 6, about the armor of God. You guys familiar with that passage? If you, some of you have probably heard of it before, right? And at the very beginning of that passage, what does he say in Ephesians 6, 11? He says, put on the whole armor of God. And then he says, so that. You know what comes after the so that? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, there's an enemy who wants to deceive you and you need to put on the armor of God so that you might be able to stand against those schemes. In other words, not just be knocked over by them. Yep, okay, whatever lie you sold me, I bought it. Rather, no, I know what is true because I have put on God's armor. Now, he says about that armor, the breastplate of righteousness, right? He says the helmet of salvation. He says many things, but do you know the first piece of armor he lists? The belt of truth. Put on the belt of truth. In other words, know what is true according to God's word. Know it. I can't help but think of Aaron Rodgers and the championship belt celebration, right? Like put it on, right? Get the belt on. And the truth is the belt that girds us up and reminds us so that when those lies come, you're like, no, 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 I've, I've got the belt of truth on. Like I know what God's word says. I know what truth is. You will not deceive me into believing that what is bad is good and what is good is bad, and so on and so forth. Okay, so let's dive into the text. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 36. And let's just hit these three categories. Here are the three categories of lies we're gonna see. And what I find so fascinating is the same lies that this guy uh, called the Rabshakeh, that's a military title. It just means like general, basically, in a Syrian army context. What this guy is going to lie about is gonna be about power, about position, and about pleasure. Now think with me about Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness in Luke chapter four. And what does the devil tempt Jesus with? Power, position, pleasure. The same things. Again, the devil's not that creative with his lies, but he is persistent. 
And he does know how to create a subtle nuance. So let's talk about lies about power. Read with me these first 10 verses, if you will, and let's look at them together. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. So he's already conquered a lot of cities. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar, the one in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, I'm gonna look at verse 11 and 12 too, sorry. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words in, uh, to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you? to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Well, that's an image, right? So here's the first thing we see. The first lies that this king, Sennacherib, through his representative, wants to bring to bear on, on the lives of God's people to convince them to compromise their trust in God and not trust God are lies about power. Now notice a couple of things that take place. In verse two, the first thing you should notice is the location of the conversation. It says that it's taking place by the upper pool right outside of the city gates, right outside of Jerusalem. Now the reason for that, you just read right over that most of the time and go, okay, they're just kind of giving us a context. But the reason that the author is pointing that out is because that's a militarily strategic move that the Rabshakeh has made. We're gonna find out later that he has 185,000 or possibly more, 185,000 soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. And they are standing by the water supply that supplies the entire city with their water. As if to say, do you see us? We can take away what you need. We have the power to build a dam here and dam up all your supplies, we will cut you off. You will be, that's why he says, you know, pardon the imagery, but they will drink their urine because there will be no more water in the city. So before he's spoken a word, he has, he has told them something about his power in comparison to their power to intimidate them without saying a word, just simply by where he positioned himself. Have you ever experienced that with somebody? Without saying a word that they look to intimidate you? 
right? That they look to scare you, to cause you to believe like I am more powerful than you are. Now, the second thing that happens is not just the positioning of the army is strategic. The second thing that happens in verse four is that when he begins to speak, <clears throat> it's just a subtle thing. It's easy to read past, but he refers to his king as the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And here's what he has to say. But did you notice how he addressed Hezekiah? Did he call him King Hezekiah? No, he did not. He just said, tell Hezekiah that the real king, the great king, the king of Assyria, the king of kings, that he says, and then he goes on to give the message. So not only has he kind of gone to warfare with his positioning to intimidate, he's also made a point to recognize that like in diplomatic, in the diplomatic world, you always refer to someone with respect unless you want to what? intimidate and scare them with your power. And so he's essentially stripping Hezekiah of his title. He won't call him king. He says, you just tell Hezekiah like he's any other guy because compared to my king, he is no king, is the message. So it's intimidation. It's all about power. Now, those are the subtleties. And now he's just gonna do away with the subtleties when he gets to verse five and he's just gonna out and out say, look, you are weak and we are strong. So notice a couple of things that he says. In verse five, he essentially says, um, you're leaning on Egypt, right? So he's talking about his con connectedness to power. And I find this to be true all the time, that the world will tell us, you are not connected to people in the halls of power, and I am. Therefore, you should be afraid of me. There's no one in position of authority who's gonna speak for you or vouch for you. And when, in this scenario, when he looks at Egypt, he says, look, uh, one historical detail that's probably worth knowing is the army of Assyria had just gone up against the army of Egypt and crushed them. And then they'd made their way to Jerusalem. So Egypt is zero help at this point, which do you remember in the earlier chapters how God was saying, don't trust Egypt, don't trust Egypt, don't trust Egypt. And Hezekiah was like, well, I think we'll make an alliance with Egypt. That sounds good. And Isaiah's like, you're a fool. Trust God. Egypt has been crushed. So the rapture case saying, look, what? You've got nothing. Then he, then he goes on to say, by the way, you see these 185,000 soldiers I've got behind me here? Do you even have 2,000 guys that you can put on our spare horses? Because I'll give you our spare horses if you can put 2,000 guys on them. And what does he know? They don't have 2,000 guys. There's nobody, right? We don't know how big their army is, but we can assume that it's not even 2,000 because they don't have enough people to put on horses to fight this battle, right? Now just get that. They have less than 2,000 men and a portion of the Assyrian army, which is 185,000 men, have shown up outside their gates. Do you get how scary this is? Do you get the power differential at play here? Now here's the interesting thing. Go back to what we said. Is anything that the Rab Shakeh is saying not true? Is anything not true? He's right, they don't have 2,000 men. He's right, Egypt is no help, right? Everything he's saying is technically true, but what is the untrue conclusion that he wants them to draw? The untrue conclusion that this Assyrian representative wants God's people to draw is this. Without worldly forms of power, God's people are without power. Without worldly forms of power, God's people are without power. What he wants them to believe is that they are powerless because they do not possess the kind of power that Assyria possesses. It's no different in the world today. Again and again and again, the world looks at the followers of Christ and they say, 
you know, you guys have this weird concept that weakness is strength, that weakness is power. And we're telling you power is power, okay? You are wrong. Power is power. Weakness is not power. And you're idiots for thinking it's that way. But my friends, don't you know that if, you're, if you follow Jesus, you never graduate out of this idea of the upside down kingdom where weakness is truly power. Because for God's people, what does weakness do? It creates complete dependence upon God who is able to deliver and show his strength and reveal his might and glory, which is the purpose of every living, breathing thing on the planet. And so weakness is power in the kingdom of God. Power is not power, but the world says again and again, power is power, power is power. And they want us to believe it. They want us to give into it. They want us to embrace this idea. Yes, positional power is power. Yes, influence is power. Yes, money is power. Yes, intellect is power. And again and again and again, God says, None of those things are necessarily bad and I may give some of those things to some of you, but at the end of the day, your power is not found in those things. Your power is found in obedience to God. And to fail to obey God is to give up your power. It is to choose to be a slave to the world when you fail to obey God for the sake of power. Do not believe the lies about power. Think about how Jesus handled this lie about power. What did the devil say to Jesus when he tempted him about power? He said, look, all the kingdoms of the world, all of them, they've all been given under my authority and I will give them all to you. I'll give them all to you. Just bow down and worship me. Just bow down and worship me. Just enslave yourself to me and I will give you more power than you could possibly imagine. And what does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God alone. The devil loves to lie about power. He loves to lie about power as if to convince us of things that are just so far from true. Now, here's what that means practically. As the people of God, we can never forget that power is not found in great numbers. It's not found in connections to people and power. It's not found in political leverage. It's not found in strong intellect or financial wealth or the keepers of culture applauding us. Power is found in obedience to God. Therefore, friends, hear this. We can never justify vacating what is morally right for policy gains or cultural influence. To choose to seek out gains in those realms at the expense of obedience to the moral truth and rightness of God is to sacrifice power, not to gain it. You become a slave. Second type of lies, lies about position. Lies about position. Now remember again what the devil said to Jesus, right? He says, I, you need to prove that God loves you. So go up on the temple, throw yourself off, and when you do it, he even, the devil even knows the word of God, right? He says that he will not allow you to strike your foot against a stone. And so the angels will come, they'll rescue you. You won't die when you throw yourself off the temple. And Jesus' response is, do not tempt me to disbelieve that I am the chosen one of God and loved by God. I do not need God to prove that to me. I know who I am. It's a lie about his position before God. And the Rabshakeh does the same thing. Did you catch what he says to God's people? Look in verse seven again. He says in verse seven, he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? 
Okay, so what the Rabshakeh is doing is he's a very astute. He knows the history of the nation. He knows what has gone on. There were all these false altars all over the country that God had not asked the people to build and they were worshiping false gods at those altars. And so to a polytheist like the Rabshakeh from Assyria, that makes no sense. You don't tear down altars, you build more because you don't wanna possibly offend any possible God that could be out there. And so he looks at Hezekiah and goes, you're an idiot for doing that. And Hezekiah knows that what he's done was absolutely faithful to God. It's exactly what God had told him to do. And God earlier in Isaiah had applauded him for doing it. You did well, Hezekiah. You did well, you tore down the altars. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. And you read the story of Hezekiah in 2 Kings, God applauds him for that. It's something that he's known for as being a good king because he did that. So here's the interesting thing. The world is telling the servant of God that the very thing that they did that was faithfulness to God is actually the opposite of faithfulness, that it represents disregarding the heart of God. And then the next thing he says in verse 10 is even trickier because the next thing he says in verse 10 is like, it's God who sent us here. The Assyrian army is at the gates because God has sent us here. He's on our side, not on your side. You have misunderstood your own God. We understand him better than you do. We know what he's like. You must not because he sent us here to conquer you. And you know what? According to Isaiah chapter 10 and what Isaiah had prophesied, he's not wrong, but he's only telling half the truth because do you remember that Isaiah chapter 10, what Isaiah had said is Assyria will come and they will do some damage. But at the end of the day, God will deliver you. God will deliver you and he will destroy Assyria because of what they have done to you. So he's giving half. Now, the Rabshakeh does not know Isaiah's prophecy, okay? He doesn't know what Isaiah has said, but he's speaking half the truth, right? God has sent me. Now, when people want to deceive you, do they often speak half the truth? Yeah, it's important to know the whole truth of God's word. So what ultimately, what, that, what those lies boil down to is lies about their position before God, as if to say, look, we represent God, you do not you don't understand the heart of God, we do. And this is something the world does to us all the time is they tell us, hey, church, you think that you know who God is, but we have a better concept of who he is. We know who he is. And I'll give you an example of this, and it's a touchy subject, I know, so I wanna handle it with some gentleness, but the whole conversation around same-sex marriage, right, and about same-sex practice. Now, here's our conviction as a church is that the Bible is really, really plain about that. And there's a lot of people in this day and age, in the church even, that are attempting to reinterpret what 2,000 years of orthodoxy has said about same-sex practice to say that it is a viable and good and righteous form of sexuality rather than one that with other expressions of sexuality represent a brokenness and a disobedience to God in our world. And the Bible just couldn't be clearer. And I don't have time to unpack all that. Uh, we have spent some time unpacking that. If you wanna go back to, when do we do that? May of 2015 and, and think on that a little bit. The, the, the conclusions of the Bible are clear about that. But here's what the world would say to us. The world says to the church all the time, you're bigoted, you're unloving, you're angry, you're on the wrong side of history. That's a, that's a favorite one. Um, you are... You know, you fail to understand the heart of a loving God. And here's what's so hard about those lies is that in some ways they're not wrong because we as a church have not loved gay men and women very well. We as a church often have not made a distinguishment between desire that we bring into submission to God 
right, versus practice. And those two, there's a difference between those two things. We haven't journeyed with people and invited them into our fellowship and into our community to say, let's walk with you and talk about what faithfulness looks like. And we haven't recognized that there is heterosexual sin that we just glance over like it's no big thing and ignore and don't speak the truth about that. And, and we speak about this aspect of sexual brokenness, right? Now I know what I'm saying is not popular in the world at large, but here's the thing, church family, listen to me. We have, we have, our church and other churches like ours have, have not always done a great job of expressing the heart of God, of love for men and women struggling with same-sex desire. We have not done a good job of that. We have not always painted the possibility of God's redemption of that journey, of how he can bring you into wholeness. Uh, we have not always done a great job of that. Does our failure to do a good job of that mean that we have misunderstood God's truth? No, it does not. Don't let the world lie to you and make you believe that you have. Most, and I would say in particular, um, my brothers and sisters who are younger, because I think you're under the most pressure in this conversation. I think the, I think the vice of pressure in your cultural context where you live every day of your life is harder than it is where I live mine. And I think the thing I would say is remember that it's a logical fallacy to say that because you have not, because the church has not done something well, that the church is wrong about its conviction about that thing. Those two things, that's a logical fallacy. It's not good argumentation. The church needs to get better. The church needs to repent. The church needs to have good conversations. The church needs to practice love and call people to chastity and purity and hold the standard of God high. Do you get what I'm saying? There is a difference between living out a conviction in a poor way and having the wrong conviction. And what the world will do often is play that logical fallacy against us and say, because you have not lived this well, therefore you have the wrong conviction about what God has said. And that's why it's so important to know God's word, right? Don't take a preacher's word for it. Don't just believe some guy or girl that sounds authoritative. Get your eyes in the word and examine what it says. Just get your eyes in the word and examine what it says. What does it teach me? What does it say to me? And I, and oh, please, please recognize it's a source of life. Give yourself to God's word. Give yourself to it. Okay. The last, the last section of lies is lies about pleasure. And I'm just gonna hit this super quick because I want us to be able to, I hate walking out of here without singing in response to God's word. We just need to sing in response to God's word. So let me just say the last lie. Again, remember when the devil confronted Jesus in the wilderness, right? What did he tell him? Turn the stone into bread. Like you've been fasting 40 days. You gotta be starving, right? Literally. You gotta be starving. Just turn the stones into bread. And Jesus goes, no, my fast is not done. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to, like I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word is my food, and I will not disobey God. I will obey him and I will trust him, right? And at the end of the day, what's so interesting is, again, I'm not gonna read it to you, but you'll notice that one of the things the rapture kid is it's so, it's so clever, it's so clever, is he says a couple things to the people. He says, look, if you'll just, if you'll just compromise, you won't have to go through all the hardship. You can stay here, you can eat from your own gardens, it'll be great. And then, and then I'll come and I'll take you away to a land that's, that's equally as good as yours. You realize what he's saying is, I will make you a slave. 
But he's gonna couch it as like, you're gonna get to go to a great place. It's gonna be great. Right? What he's really saying is come and be my slave. Compromise, trust in God, and come and be my slave. But it's so tempting. And let me tell you that verse, uh, verse 12, when, he's, when they're saying, please, 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 please speak to us in Aramaic because we understand it. And what you're saying is scary stuff and we don't want all the people to hear it. You know what, is, what strikes fear into the heart of a leader? Like if you lead people, see if you resonate with this. If you lead people well, you love them, right? You want good for them. And it's one thing to say, I will suffer to be obedient to God. It's another thing to know that when I choose this, everyone behind me will also suffer. My choice is going to make them possibly be put in a place where they will be in agony and I cannot bear to see my people in agony. Here's the heart of the lie that the Rabshake is saying. It's the heart of the lie the devil is saying to Jesus. And it's the heart of the lie the world says to us every day. Pleasure is the ultimate purpose of life. Your pleasure and your comfort are the ultimate end. And if you feel that way, if you buy that lie, then there is nothing big enough for you to say it's worth going through suffering to get to that because that's the ultimate end. But what Jesus knew is that the ultimate end is the glory of God, his kingdom come into the world. And if you believe that, then suffering is worth it. It's worth going through the suffering to get there. And I love how Hezekiah coaches his people because you know he's gotta be, his heart has gotta be breaking for the possibility of what they're about to have to go through. And what he says to them is, in the face of these lies, I want you to be silent. And they are. They trust their king. And they are silent. They will not speak. And it's, a, it's their way, it's silent protest, right? It's their way of saying, what you're saying is not true. We won't dignify it with a response. And so they are silent. I love that. But friends, you've got to remember the purpose of life the purpose of life is not pleasure. It's not comfort. The purpose of life, and, and the enemy will lie to you again and again. And just, yeah, just seek out your own comfort. Look, it's like following God's too hard. Getting up early to study God's word, too hard. Too hard. Disciplining yourself in what you look at. Like, why? Why would you do that? Your friends are going to that movie. Your friends are watching that thing. They're turning on the screen and checking out that thing. Everybody loves that thing. It's funny. You should like that thing. He's saying, no, discipline your gaze, discipline your eyes. Your comfort is not the point. Your comfort is not the point. There's something bigger. You gotta see it. You gotta see the bigger thing. So look, to close, church, how do you do that? Like, how do you reject these lies that we're talking about, about power, about position, about pleasure? Because they're tempting, right? They're pretty, they're pretty well-crafted. And the way you do it is you have a cross-centered vision of life. You remember you remember that the king who saved you saved you through an instrument of weakness, not through an instrument of power, right? Our king hung on a cross. Our savior hung on a cross. It's the ultimate demonstration of weakness. And what did it do? It, it wrought, it worked the ultimate act of power in all of human history. So we embrace that weakness is power. Power is not power. If you want to learn to reject lies about position, you remember that your king died to make you a son or daughter of the king. A cross-centered vision of life, that death made you positionally stable before God. You are his, he is yours. A cross-centered vision of life helps you reject the lies about pleasure because you remember he suffered, he suffered, he counted it joy 
right? He counted it joy. The author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2 says, the author and perfecter of our faith endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What's that joy that was set before him? The glory of God, the kingdom of God come into the world, redemption of people for the sake of God. A cross-centered vision of life reminds you again and again, oh, that's a lie about pleasure. Oh, that's a lie about position. Oh, that's a lie about power. And I choose to reject those so that I might live according to the truth as it's revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want so much to honor you. And we do pray that you give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see what is true and right and good. Help us to reject lies, lies of the enemy, lies of the evil one, lies of the world, and to see what is right and good. I pray that for my people, for my church family. I pray that they would have eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. Humble us. We know, Holy Spirit, we need your guidance to see what is true. We pray that you'd give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.